Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The big political story this past week was that of Michael Cohen, the president's former personal attorney. He was sentenced to three years in prison for various amounts of charges. One was a campaign finance charge where he implicated the president in a hush money scandal. We actually found out that Donald Trump was in the room in August 2015 when Michael Cohen and David Pecker of the National Enquirer were talking about paying these women off. For more on this sentencing, we spoke to Laura Namias. She's the author of the New York Playbook for Politico. She was in the courtroom when it all went down, and we started off there. There was sort of a palpable sense of relief from Michael Cohen. He said that he actually felt very free on the day of his sentencing. He said that he had made the decision. He had the freedom to choose to cooperate and to come clean about this stuff that he did. And that, in a sense, freed him. In a way, it was more of a calm atmosphere than it has been at other moments in the saga of his courtroom drama. Well, I mean, he's been on edge for so long now since the FBI raided his offices and just constant blowback from the public, from the president. Everything had been thrust into the public spotlight. This is probably some type of closure for him. He went up and he delivered a statement. People said he got very emotional. I think he was crying, breaking down almost a little bit. And he did say he pinned a lot of this on the president. What did he say? He told the judge that today was the day that he was getting his freedom back and that he had been living in quote, a personal and mental incarceration ever since the day that I accepted the offer to work for a real estate mogul whose business acumen I deeply admired. So that's President Trump. He said that his major weakness in life was a blind loyalty to Donald Trump because, quote, time and time again, I felt it as my duty to cover up his dirty deeds. So really pinning it all on the president and seemed very genuinely regretful about his relationship with the president, which at this point is landing him in jail for three years. And he is going to have to forfeit a significant amount of money and pay almost $1.4 million to the IRS. I know this is a prepared mm-hmm. statement and all, but I mean, there's a, a lot of drama just in those words. And you go back to, you know, when they met Michael Cohen and, and the president, as he said, he did respect his business acumen. Michael Cohen was one of the first people that was doing that exploratory part of it to see if there would be enough support for Donald Trump to run for president. I mean, he was there for a lot of stuff. And I think his attorney, Lenny Davis, said that he would be willing to also testify before Congress. I can't imagine there not being some type of book in the works, things like that. So, I mean, there's going to be a lot of stuff coming out about their relationship in the time to come still. And he and his lawyer repeatedly emphasized during the court proceedings that Michael Cohen, although he doesn't have a formal cooperation agreement with the Southern District U.S. Attorney's Office, that he is willing to continue to give any information that he can to federal prosecutors, either in the Southern District or the special counsel's office going forward. So he's already sat with them for hours and hours, giving them what they've only described as reliable and and credible information, sort of tantalizingly. 
and he says that he's willing to offer more. So this is not the last that we're going to hear of Michael Cohen. He can still be brought to testify. He can still cooperate, even if he's in prison. The bars are only physical. They're not metaphysical. Right. He pled guilty to a bunch of stuff, tax evasion, financial fraud. The main one were the campaign finance violations, paying off of two women so that news of their affair wouldn't affect the election for President Trump. Prosecutors Mm -hmm. also released a non-prosecution agreement with the National Enquirer publisher, basically saying that it was all done in cooperation, consultation, and concert with the Trump campaign to -hmm. make sure that it didn't affect them. The president, for his part, denied it. Then he acknowledged it. Then he said, well, it wasn't campaign transactions. It was a personal transaction, a private transaction. This is the big implication here. This is what involves the president. So how does that go moving forward? The news that came out after the sentencing of that non-prosecution agreement with AMI is actually really significant news because prior to that, you sort of had Donald Trump's words versus Michael Cohen's on what exactly those transactions were. This is corroborative. It's two groups of people swearing under penalty of perjury that this was related to the election. This is not a personal transaction. And that could potentially be an issue of criminal liability for President Trump. So that that could be very serious for him, separate and apart from all of the Russia investigation business. For his part, the president continues to call Michael Cohen a liar, but things are heating up and we'll see what comes up next. Laura Namias, author of the New York Playbook for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. One of the interesting tech stories of the week was that of the future of lie detection. It's different from a standard polygraph test because it's focusing on your eyes and the movement of your eyes. For more on that, we spoke to Mark Harris. He's a journalist with Wired about eye detect and how it works. The underlying idea of it isn't isn't crazy. The idea that when we're telling lies, when we're trying to deceive people, it takes a bit more work. It takes a bit more emotional effort to lie. And also we get kind of excited or nervous when we're lying. So that's kind of pretty well understood from the psychological side. Now, I detect kind of take the big leap from that and says that, oh, if we take a video of your eyes, like looking at your eyes and the way that your pupils change, the way that you blink or you look in certain directions, then we can tell whether you're lying or not. So it kind of takes some understood psychological principles and then takes this big jump saying that by looking at your eyes, we can see whether you're lying or not. Just first, that contrast between this and a standard polygraph test, this thing takes like 30 minutes to go through where a polygraph test are much longer, two hours, up to four hours, depending on how many questions you're going to ask. It, it uses algorithms, right? The, the game is now, can you beat the algorithm versus can you beat the interpretation of the test administrator? So instead of going to an operator or administrator coming and scoring your test, the algorithm does that. So it's kind of an AI process where the system has supposedly been developed by checking people who they know are telling the truth or lying. That's problematic anyway. But then the actual evaluation process is very quick. All your motions and all the things about your eye get sent up into the cloud. The algorithms crunch through it and then out pops an answer about whether you're telling the truth or not. Actually, it kind of gives you a scale. It kind of scores you on 100. And if you get over 50, you've passed. And if you get under 50, then you've failed some part of that test. 
And how does it work? Are you putting on glasses? Are you just staring at another computer screen? I noticed in your reporting, you're answering questions on, on a Microsoft tablet. How is it analyzing your eyes? Yeah, and then it's just like a little camera attached to it, just like a little camera attaches on your laptop, little external webcam. It's just like sitting at a computer, just like sitting at your desk, really. If you already have a screen and a camera pointing at you, which many of us do for you know video calls, then it just feels exactly like that. It just feels like you're clicking through. There's no lasers. There's no sense of it looking at you. You don't have to wear anything. It can kind of track your motions. I mean, you can't be wobbling your head all over the place, but if you're just sitting at the computer, it just seems like taking an online test of any sort. Let's talk about the accuracy of this, because I know there's some debate about how accurate it can be, how low it goes, and also who's using this so far. The thing about accuracy, right? I mean, the company says that it's 86% accurate, which is pretty accurate and probably more accurate than the polygraph, if that were true. The polygraph, people say anything between 50 and 80%. Mm -hmm. You know, the problem is that the only people who check the accuracy of the device are the company <laughs> itself and scientists who, you know, who, who are working on the, that's on the how technology. They get away with it. <laughs> yeah, so there's that question mark over it for a, for a start. I'm not saying they're doing anything improper, but, you know, their expectations come into the test, the way they do the tests, who knows? We haven't had many, many really serious independent eyes looking at it. And then some of the tests even they've done themselves have proven problematic. There was one they did with the National Security Agency, the NSA, where they tested staff within the NSA itself about little minor security violations. And that might be something like taking your cell phone into an area, you're not allowed it, not actually doing anything wrong, but just like, you know, forgetfulness perhaps. And they found really only detected 50% of the people who admitted taking the test in, right? So they, oh. they, they questioned them and then they asked them afterwards, did you really take your phone in? And, and people would admit it because it wasn't a big deal. So that was like a 50% in the real world. Now they've said they've had um, other examples where it's done better. And they've also said there are other examples where it did kind of worse, but they haven't published the results. So the question is, you know, no one really knows exactly how accurate it is on a scientific scale, but that hasn't stopped people wanting to use it. The polygraph has its own problems with accuracy and people still use those. There's a couple of US embassies have used it abroad for hiring decisions and some US companies as well. Some or some international companies. Company says that it's had companies like Best Western, FedEx and McDonald's have use them in businesses abroad. And that would typically be in cases of fraud or where they suspect their employee of doing something wrong, they would put them through this test. Now, such tests are not legal in the US. There's a law because of the inaccuracies and the widespread problems with polygraph. Lie detecting for private companies is illegal in the US for most private companies, but they can still be used by law enforcement to hire their staff. And that's primarily where they're being used within the US. About 20 agencies, the company says, is already using the eye detect system to screen their potential employees. So this is gaining some traction and you could possibly see it in a lot more places. We talked about how cheap it was compared to a standard polygraph test. They're charging between 60 and 80 bucks per test on this. So that's a big difference there. Tell me about your experience because you went through this whole thing. Let me know if you beat the machine or not. Well, you know, I thought I couldn't write about it without having a go on it. And the company arranged for me to take a test at one of these stations where potential police officers would also take the test. So I had a pretty fair crack of the whip of the technology. And, you know, it was actually, it wasn't stressful. It wasn't, I didn't feel like I was in an interrogation room being grilled by somebody who was trying to find me out. Right. You know, we didn't do the full test that they would do, which asked you about drug use and other criminal behavior. We did one where it tries to guess a number you're thinking of. And they said, oh, you know, think of a number between one and 10 and we'll guess what it is just by asking you questions about what your number is. And so I think of a number and I take the test and really it, the time zips by, I'm clicking away and it doesn't feel strange at all. And at the end, it says, comes on the screen, you've chosen number three. And I hadn't, I've chosen number one. So I beat the test and I felt so good about it. I felt great. 
Now that wasn't, this isn't, this isn't a real test. <laughs> <laughs> and then they explained to me, actually, we wanted you to think of a number between two and nine, uh, like, like one to 10, but not one or 10. Yeah. And I was like, oh, what? So we, we complete <laughs> miscommunication between us. But the system didn't realize that I hadn't chosen one of the numbers it was asking about. Right. That in there, right there is some of the inherent problems. If you're not understanding right. the questions right, things can get right. uh, wonky from your reporting. Also, there's sensitivities that they can also alter in the algorithm. Right. So there does seem to be a few kinks to be worked out on. But it's still pretty fascinating because we've always been kind of trying to figure out this type of technology. I mean, the polygraph test is so old now and they're just trying to think of some more things. It's fascinating because it's well, because it's kind of cheaper and easier. It doesn't need the examiner. It could actually scale much more. Right now, you're limited to these long polygraph tests and they're quite intrusive, physically and emotionally draining to, to people. Whereas this is something you can administer this test in a matter of minutes to anyone who happens to be walking past. I think you're interesting that you picked up on the idea that they can adjust the test just because it's computerized doesn't mean it's impartial. And I've got through my records request as part of the story, I've I found several instances where they put their thumb on the scales, right? So when there was somebody that they thought had a better chance of passing the test, and that was like maybe somebody who had previously been employed as a police officer elsewhere, they gave them an easier test. Uh -huh. And conversely, when there was somebody who literally came from the wrong part of town, right? They were identified as coming from a, an urban center where they traditionally had some problems with, you know, inner city violence, then they actually made, gave them a harder test. And so somebody who should have, in the case of the police officer, somebody who should have failed for admitting drug use actually passed the test. And from the case of the somebody who came from the inner city, someone who should have passed because they got a passing grade was failed because they adjusted this sensitivity. And so that kind of thing just means that, that just because it's computerized doesn't mean we get away from the same old problems we've got with a lot of selection procedures in that they you know have come some kind of institutional bias built in. Mark Harris, freelance journalist writing for Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. There was big testimony this week as Google CEO Sundar Pichai testified before the House Judiciary Committee. Conservatives on the committee got into heated exchanges with Pichai about perceived political bias baked into the Google platform. We spoke to David McCabe. He's a technology reporter for Axios, and he told us about the biggest takeaways. As expected, the issue of alleged anti-conservative bias on Google's products dominated a lot of the conversation, led to a lot of the most heated exchanges. The one that sticks out in my mind is a Republican lawmaker told Senator Pichai, perception is reality. And that stuck with me because it gets us into the heart of this problem, which is that as much as Google says this doesn't happen, the bias doesn't exist, and here's how we vet our search results, there are people who are convinced that it is going on. And I don't think that Sundar Pichai really changed their minds. But in terms of a single headline, one didn't really come out of the hearing besides that a lot of congressional Republicans spent their time on these disputed charges of political bias. And as a result, that's a real win for Google, that there was not one obvious headline about a really substantive long-term policy issue for them based on something that Mr. Chai said. Right. It wasn't like when Mark Zuckerberg went up there and, I mean, there was multiple headlines about multiple topics. One of the ones that stood out in, in my head, you know, from reading over things that were going on, was when Representative Lowe's Lofgren of California asked Sundar Pichai, can you explain to me how the searches work? And was like, why, if I Google it idiot in the image section, Donald Trump comes up there. <laughs> it's just like so silly to bring up that example. But I mean, that's kind of the way the line of questions were going. 
Yeah, and I mean, Congresswoman Lofgren is a long-time ally of Silicon Valley. I think questions like that end up giving Google an opportunity to give its version of events more so than they really press it on, on some of these issues. And we saw that from some Democrats. So some Democrats did press pretty hard on issues like privacy or competition instead of spending their time on this bias question. Let's talk about privacy, because I know that is a huge concern for a lot of consumers. And the unfortunate thing is that it's mostly a concern after the fact, after somebody's been hacked or something like that. So what did they say about privacy and keeping people's data safe? Sundar Pichai says that Google does take steps to protect user privacy, that it doesn't just collect data for data's sake. He says that they're very aware, and this came up in an interview that my colleagues and I had with them later in the day, that they're very aware that this is a changing consumer expectation. At the same time, it's clear that lawmakers agree with the many people who do find some of the data collection to be on its face kind of creepy. And that's particularly acute when it comes to location data. We saw a New York Times story just recently that talked about the way that app developers, so not necessarily Google or Facebook, but app developers record location data. And we saw that come up on multiple occasions. A lot of the services and ad targeting and everything, that's kind of like at the very basis of everything, is knowing where you are and where you're going. Exactly. I mean, think about how much about your life you could learn from where you've been and where you're going and the patterns that that, that uh, reveals. On China, because I know when we talked about this briefly, it seemed like people were going to be pressing him a lot on that, bringing a form of censored Google to the Chinese market. And it seemed like he said there's no plans to really do anything about that. He said there are right now no plans to enter the Chinese search market with a censored offering. The key there is right now, yeah. sort of a rhetorical trick that allows you to say at this very moment in time, we don't have these plans. It doesn't preclude plans in the future. And in fact, he, he avoided answering a question that was, will you commit to not doing this? While your CEO, I think what we've seen him say is, well, listen, we are working on this. At some point, it was maybe as much as 100 people working on this. But these experiments could lead us in other directions to other businesses in China. And as he said, right now, they claim they don't have a plan to, <laughs> to debut this offering in China. That's the easy way out right there. He testified for about three hours. And then after that, he spoke to you guys there at Axios and admitted he knows that the big scrutiny on all of these technology companies is here to stay. I mean, it, it's not going to go away anymore. It's going to be in, increasing, really, because of how much we use and how much we rely on these things. And we've said this multiple times that regulations and lawmakers are always behind the ball on when new things pop up. So what did he have to say to you guys? He told us he thinks the scrutiny is here to stay, at least for the near term. He said it's hard to predict you know, how this stuff cycles in and out, but for the near term, it is here to stay. Those were his words. He said it's also a good thing that this kind of scrutiny is important. But of course, that is not a huge surprise that he would say that, that he would sort of embrace this moment rather than just get into a defensive crouch, because that can lead to some pretty hard places for a company. You know, on a broader sense, it was clear that he is aware that that the company that he runs now is in a very different position than Google was when it was founded, when it was sort of a, an up-and-coming startup that didn't have these questions about power and dominance and potential abuses of power and dominance. From your understanding, does he seem like one that is going to be open to regulations from lawmakers? There's still this disconnect where it seems like a lot of lawmakers don't understand how all these processes work. Is he going to be open to regulation from them? Google, like a lot of other big technology companies, ISPs, has said that they want national privacy regulation. What they're attempting to do here is first circumvent state regulation, preempt state regulation, because after California passed a privacy law, there's a chance that you might have 50 different state privacy laws. They don't want to deal with that. And potentially that the states could go further than California. So that's part of why they're calling for this. It's also important to remember that they are making an active choice to try and shape a law rather than just saying, no, we won't take one and risk that it will happen anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's 
so important with Google specifically from the uh, testimony. He said that they served over three trillion searches last year. I know it is one of the main go-tos for a lot of people. So it's very important what Sundar Pichai has to say and his contemporaries and these other big tech firms. And it's just going to be interesting to see how all of this stuff keeps continuing to develop because we rely on it so much. David McCabe, technology reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.